I, uh, I literally just finished editing the last episode. <laughs> oh, oh, jeez. I'm, I'm still laughing. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good episode. Oh, God. I was laughing as I was editing and listening to myself laughing. It was a very strange experience. <laughs> Quite surreal. Oh uh, uh, yeah. Hopefully, by the time people hear this, they would have heard it. We had a jolly good time. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it. <laughs> yes, please do. Please do. It was it was quite something. It really was. <laughs> After we finished recording, my wife came downstairs and was like, "Are you okay?" Give <laughs> me a stroke. Was giggling for the past two hours. <laughs> <laughs> How's your, how was the rest of your weekend? Yeah, good, thank you. A couple of friends came over um, and we went out to Windsor. And my plan, my grand plan was that we'd go out to Windsor and uh, go and walk down the Great Park um, and then get some food afterwards. And that didn't turn out to be what happened at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, it, um, well, yeah, not that people know when we record this, but basically last week it was all, you know, it wasn't great weather, but it wasn't raining at all. Quite mild, quite lovely. Overcast most days, and then it hit the weekend, and it just didn't stop raining on Saturday. Yeah, so that, that was a thing. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Really good walking weather. So no, we 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 got to uh, we got to Windsor, um, and kind of went to the restaurant straight away, really, which was difficult because about half of them, if not more, were closed, which. Uh. Uh, yeah, kind of surprised me, really. Yeah. Um, on the high street, anyway. Um, and in the sort of the old shopping arcade where the, where the station used to be. More or still is, I suppose. But yeah, no, it was, yeah, it was good, though. It was a good time. Did it do that horrible kind of raining where it's fine when you leave the car and then it waits just long enough for you to be away from the car, then it starts raining? <laughs> or was it at least nice enough to rain as soon as you got out of the car? <laughs> oh, no, it was, it was raining all the time, honestly. Uh, okay. <laughs> raining all the way there, raining when we out of the car, raining when we the restaurant. <laughs> It might have stopped when we were in the restaurant, but it rained again when we left. Nice, nice, <laughs> <Yeah>. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> really good. But no, it's not that good otherwise. How about you? What about Oh, I had a had a DIY day yesterday at my sister's flat. Oh, nice. Painting walls. Uh, that was probably the most... That was the... Yeah, it was only really painting. I don't mind painting. Uh, the act of actually painting, I, I kind of enjoy. But it's the taping off oh, of stuff beforehand yeah. that just drives me mad. Rubbing it down, cleaning it off, mm. taping it off. Yeah. Oh, so it's just dull. <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. Dull. It is so dull. And part of the painting was painting around tiles in their kitchen, and they had these tiny little square tiles, and I had to tape all the way around the edge of these square tiles. Oh. And they're going down like a diagonal line, and oh. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, that wasn't fun. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I had one of those lockdown days where we finished for the day and like we had we ordered some takeout and um, just hung out at the flat for a little about a little while and heading to the car. I kind of thought right. to myself, it feels like I just woke up. Where the hell is today gone? <laughs> like I feel like my sense of time is just completely gone. Like it's just it's just mm-hmm. vanished. It yep. was it was really weird. Like I could think about all the things I'd done that day and I'd done a lot, but to me it just it just felt like the day had just vanished. Yeah, it disappeared. It was really weird. Yeah, I guess a lot of, yeah a lot of days kind of blend one now at the moment well just because yeah. you know everything's pretty much the same every day <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> well that's good though did you get the painting completed yes yeah yeah well yeah we got it done nice so yes they're there well i think i think everything's painted in the flat now we might need we might be doing one of the bathrooms i think but i'm not sure 
Mm, fair enough. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I just get told where where to, where to build this, where to put that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> get directed in the right direction. Yeah, pretty much. I'm heading over tomorrow. I'm working unsupervised because Holly's not going to be there. But all I'm doing is building a desk and laying out their office. So I'm pretty sure I can manage that one on my own. <laughs> just building a desk, yeah, setting sure. up a computer, and uh, loading up a bookcase. So those are all my specialities. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only job I'm allowed to do unsupervised. <laughs> Talking of offices, have you had yours there? Uh, they come back and cleaned off the um, the plaster dust yet? No, not yet. No. Mm. The the guy came out to, this morning to have a look at stuff, and um, the electrician and the plumber are still due to come back. But I don't know whether they're going to need to come back as well now. The plasterers, so I'm right. not I'm not sure if any more cleaning is going to happen. I'm going to be a bit upset if it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I had a moment of you know those moments where you you do something and you only realise afterwards just how much of a idiot you are. <laughs> We were sure. <laughs> we were talking with the electricians about how terrible the the wiring is in the house. I think I may have mentioned this last time. Yeah, we were just talking about how crazy the currents are and everything. And I'm I'm not very good at picking up on subtlety, like it's it's not it's not a skill of mine. Sure. And we were just talking about how terrible the wiring was and how some stuff shouldn't work and all the rest of it. And then one of the electricians was like, "Oh, but does your kettle work?" <laughs> Nice. In hindsight, what I realised was he was saying, "Oh, do you want to make us a cup of tea?" Yeah, yeah, I'd, have a, I'd murder a cup of tea, mate. Yeah, that's what he was saying. Mm. But what I heard was him inquiring as to whether or not our kettle worked, and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, it does actually. Thanks." <laughs> <laughs> and we just sort of stood there in like an awkward silence for a few seconds, and I was like, "Right, well, I'll leave you. I'll let you get on with it." <laughs> <laughs> so wait a minute, he didn't get his cup of tea. No, he didn't. Not until later. <laughs> Imagine burn your house down. A little bit later, I said, "Is there anything I could get for you guys?" And he obviously threw subtlety out the window and said, "Yeah, could you, would you mind making us some coffee?" I'm like, yeah, of course, no problem. <laughs> and as I'm sitting there making it, I'm thinking, "Oh, okay, <laughs> I realise what I've just done." <laughs> nice. Oh. oh, I remember it was going to be subtle then. Yeah, don't worry, I've, yeah. I've got that. <laughs> no, I won't pick up on it. I won't pick up no. on it at all. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, what a builder always wants for electrician is always a cup of tea. Yeah, a cup of tea, a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in this case, it was coffee. They uh, they both wanted uh, a cup of coffee. Sure. Uh, but luckily, we have we have instant coffee in the cupboard for when my when my father in law comes to visit. So I got to give them instant coffee instead of having to use any of my nice coffee. Not only did he not get his cup of coffee the first time round, you gave him the sweet stuff. Yeah, of course. <laughs> to be fair, he ordered it with like milk and three sugars. So. Oh, three sugars, jeez. Yeah, that's not. So I'm not wasting good coffee, coffee on that. No. <laughs> Kind of the real business of coffee, you've got three sugars in it. That might make me a snob, but I'm not wasting good coffee. <laughs> <on that>. oh, <laughs> <dear>. <sighs> yeah. I remember something else I did last week. It was played a game on Tabletopia, I think it is. So essentially, it's a way to, for board games to be sort of um, played online, essentially. Yeah. And you could do it with friends. I've never really played it before, but yeah, it's a thing on Steam, essentially. And uh, the, the game was called uh, Space Alert. Have you ever heard of that? I have, yes, oh, yes. Yeah, I've never played it before, and it was uh, quite an experience. <laughs> <laughs> so, board game geek described Space Alert as a cooperative team survival game, and essentially, you're in a spaceship and it's a dystopian universe. I think in the fact that the corporation owns everything, and you're a bunch of humans on board, but the, you're, all you're really doing is making sure the um, weapon systems fire when you have aliens attack you. You're not doing anything else because that's what the computers do. And uh, you have this uh, sort of audio—I was going to say tape. Who? You have this audio. Uh, 
um, mm. going on in the background over about a course of about ten minutes. It's explaining, it's sort of telling you what's what's going on and where, where you know where the aliens are and uh, which sort of quadrant of the ship and which you know what's going, uh-huh. what's where, how they're attacking and stuff. But when you're playing the game, you're all sort of it's all happening in real time. So you're all sort of <laughs> shouting each other, trying to go the right places to get more power going, or uh, you know, um, fire the lasers or. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it is you're supposed to do. Um, and you have like, I think it's like 10, they're called, they're not turns, I suppose, but... Units of time. Yeah, 10 units, thank you, yeah, 10 units of time. And uh, you're supposed to obviously, but if you screw up one of those units of time, you end up in the wrong place, you've done the wrong thing, then it just screws up everything else. <laughs> and obviously you're all doing it, the thing's talking to you, you're all shouting at each other. And you, yeah. yeah, you very easy to miss stuff. Um, and we, we played on like, I guess, the easy level without having any internal threats or any external threats, like coming at the ship. And uh, we, yeah, we failed that mission. Then we played, I think, again, and I think we, we might have got out of that one just luckily. I think we won like one one life left, as it were. I don't know how many we had in total, but yeah, basically. <laughs> one life. Then we played with internal threats as well, and yeah, we, we definitely died on that one. Big, big time. <laughs> hard died. I have a similar one called, um, I think it's called like Escape the Temple or something like that, ah. um, which is the same kind of idea, but you're basically like a bunch of Indiana Jones pe- type. Um, people sure. exploring an, an ancient temple and trying to grab treasure before the all the traps close and you you get trapped in forever. Sure. Except you're all clearly completely incompetent because <laughs> you're, you're, you're having to constantly roll dice. Um, if you get one face on the dice, you can't roll it anymore until someone comes and helps you. And of course, the first thing you do is everyone scatters. So you get you get to a point where you're like rolling these dice and you eventually end up with all of these faces. So you can't do anything. So you're just stuck and you're having to like scream for help because it's also happening in real time. And so everyone's just running around shouting, I need this, help, I need this, I'm stuck, I'm stuck, ah! <laughs> help me! And when you play it, you, there's a CD of music you play a similar kind of way. Yeah. And then every now and again, a, a gong sounds and you've got like 30 seconds to all get to a safe point because all the traps are going to trigger. <laughs> and we, my, my friends and I, the first time we played it, we were screaming and shouting at each other so much, like, help me, I'm stuck, oh my God, quick, get away, get away. We, we couldn't hear when the gongs were sounding. <laughs> So we got to the end of the game and we just managed to get out the temple before the music stops. And we were like, hang on, weren't there supposed to be gongs? <laughs> and we'd been, just, we'd been shouting at each other so much, we couldn't, we couldn't hear the bloody things. <laughs> it, was, it was chaos. We agreed not to play that one again for a while. Now. I don't think we yeah, played it. Yeah, absolutely. It was just exhausting. the old blood pressure a little bit. <laughs> Oh dear. So, yeah, it sounds very similar. But yes, suffice to say we didn't we didn't do very well. No, no. Yeah, it, was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was quite good fun, but yeah. <laughs> Literally no idea it was going on most of the time. <laughs> but it's not much better than nobody else seemed to have no idea what was going on either. <laughs> <laughs> well at least you went that's on like, your own. No, that's exactly that quite pleased me really. <laughs> There's a there's a um a similar version. Is it called? I think it's called Space Cadets. Oh, right. Where you're, it's a bit more kind of cartoony. It's a bit more like spoof Star Trek kind of setting. Sure. And you're uh, you're two ships fighting each other, and you're you're having to do similar things. You're like constantly rolling dice and stuff, and trying to load the torpedo tube and move around and cloak and decloak the ship. And like your captain is trying to steer the ship whilst looking where the other guy's going and all the rest of it. And <laughs> as soon as you've managed to finally lock onto the other ship and load the torpedoes, you have to like say where you're shooting it and how far. Oh my god. And then you shout fire and the whole game freezes while you fire your torpedo and, and resolve it sure and the first time we played that we were just flying around in circles because by the time we'd managed to somehow bodge together loading the torpedo and targeting it the enemy ship had moved so you shout fire and like fire it 500 yards to the left or something <laughs> or like <laughs> half an hour to load the bloody torpedo tube and you, and you look the look on the captain's face as the torpedo goes hurtling off into space everyone's oh, for fuck's sake <laughs> Completely in the wrong direction. The one job. 
<laughs> but you realize you've loaded the rear torpedo launcher instead of the forward torpedo launcher. <laughs> like it sounds like what I would do. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> Oh, dearie me. Oh. Yeah, let's play that again sometime, I reckon. Uh, so apart from that, anything else exciting? Um, nothing major, but I did watch The Highwayman. I think we talked about it previously. Ah, oh, yes, um, the um, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie film. and Clyde. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Um, we talked about, well, I talked about Bonnie and Clyde in episode 10 of our podcast. And um, yeah, you you talked about The Highwayman, I think, at that point. So I finally got around to watching it the other day. Yeah, it's really good, actually. And it t- only took you 13 episodes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I haven't got back to uh, Deep Space Nine yet. I watched half of one episode of that. (sighs) Busy playing computer games. Yeah. (laughs) Another thing. Other important life things. Yeah, that's right. More important than Deep Space Nine, Chris. You should know that by Mm. now. Yeah, yeah, sure. But no, I was quite impressed with it. It was really good. Um, You didn't really get to see... They didn't. They focus obviously on the highway themselves, the two Texas Rangers or ex-Texas Rangers throughout the whole film. Uh, but it's good though, and obviously Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, as I said, or as I recounted in in episode ten, they they kind of I think it was over a thousand bullets or something. I mean, it was an insane amount of bullets. I can't remember, but yeah, it was a lot of bullets. And they just they obviously showed that right at the end, and uh, yeah, kind yeah, of crazy. That scene is quite intense, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But that was a good movie, though. I liked it. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was really good. I, I'd never even heard the story of the people who caught them. Obviously, you know, lots of people have heard about Bonnie and Clyde, mm. but I had no idea about the Texas Rangers they sent after them. No, no, totally. Yeah, and obviously in the movie, they made it very much about the Rangers, not about Bonnie and Clyde. So they kind yeah. of had Bonnie and Clyde saying a few words that you could hear. And most of the time, it was the car they were driving in you saw, not actually them, until right at the end. Yeah. So yeah, really, really took the focus off the, obviously, the, the um, what you would assume would be the most famous part of the story, being the protagonists, <laughs> ordinarily. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really good. But no, yeah, I'd definitely recommend it. It was good. I started watching this really, really weird movie on Netflix the other day. <laughs> um, with it's called the the Old Ones, I think, or the Ancient Ones. I should really look these things up before I talk about them. It's not the Old Guard, is it? The Old Guard, yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah, I saw that the other night. Actually, that was weird. <laughs> it's really yes, weird. I'm only halfway through it. Uh, yeah, it's it's very strange. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit odd. My, it's actually my friend Andy and ha- my friends Andy, Andy and Hannah came over and uh, we watched it uh, the other night and. Uh, <laughs> Andy found a few holes in it, let's put it that way. <laughs> a few plot holes. One or two. I don't think it's the kind of film you want to sit down and analyse too too deeply. New, new, <laughs> new. Not, not really. Andy did. Oh, okay. <laughs> Should we make a start? Yes, yeah, let's go for it. I'll, I think it's your turn to go first. Okay, all right. There we go then. We often repeat sayings or call things strange names, like I've got a hangover, when telling someone you have got a headache from drinking too much the night before. These sayings, or idioms as they are formerly known, have obviously developed over time and and have, in a lot of cases, lost their meaning to us here in the 21st century. We say them because our parents or grandparents have, or others that we associate with, such as colleagues or friends, or they're just common in popular culture. So this week on the internet, I've learned about the origins of some popular sayings and phrases. I think you'll probably be surprised as when I tell you about some of them. (laughs) Excellent. Maybe, maybe, Maybe it won't be a so we're completely ridiculous as last week. Oh, I don't think I could take another one. <laughs> I think my heart's strong enough for it. <laughs> That's right, yeah. My chest cavity's still feeling quite, quite restrained, you know, quite tight. <laughs> so let's start with don't count your chickens before they've hatched. Okay. The phrase is basically saying don't count the outcome of whatever you're doing before you've even started. And, but where does it come from? It actually comes from Aesop. Aesop. I don't know exactly how you pronounce that. I've always called it Aesop, but uh, yeah. Who was a Greek fabulist uh, that you probably learned about in school. Um, I know I did. I think I learned about it in primary school. 
Anyway, Aesop is created with an um, is credited, sorry, with a number of fables that are known as Aesop's fables. And don't count your chickens before they've hatched. Comes from one he wrote in 570 BC called The Milkmaid and Her Pail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds like a very different kind of book. <laughs> Sounds like one of those terrible 70s British softcore porn movies. <laughs> On VHS. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's not that. Oh, dear me. Anyway. <laughs> so, so Patty is a simple father's daughter. Yeah, her name's Patty as well. Mm, nice. And... Uh, <laughs> She's daydreaming because she's heading into town with a pail of milk balanced on the top of her head. Patty thought, and I quote this from Aesop himself, uh, the milk milk in this pail will provide me with cream, which I will make into butter, which I will sell in the market to buy a dozen eggs, which will hatch into chickens, which will lay more eggs, and I soon I will have a large poultry yard. I'll sell some of the fowls to buy me myself a handsome new gown and go to the fair. <laughs> Seems fair enough. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's better. And when the young fellows try to make love to me at the fair, <laughs> I'll toss my head and pass them by. Ah. I'm not sure that she, you know, that really means what we think it means nowadays. But anyway, <laughs> at that moment, Patty tossed her head and lost a pail full of milk. Her mother admonished, "Do not count your chickens before they are hatched." Uh-huh. And obviously, mothers know best. After yes, all. of course. <laughs> not, that would be at all irritating for Patty that she just wasted all her milk on the floor and uh, then had her mum see it and was now going to tell her about it for the rest of her life, probably. <laughs> <laughs> So that's where don't count your ca- don't count your chickens before the hatch comes from. Apparently, ah, excellent. Next up, we've got a white elephant. The saying and uh, the saying goes something like: "Is a white elephant is obviously like a building project or a business venture or a or a massive object that you know, in, in basically modern terms, means the cost of buying and particularly maintaining it is totally out of proportion with all um, to its usefulness. So it costs way more than it actually ever is useful. Whatever it is, it's generally considered to be totally useless and really quite expensive. I believe, obviously, back at the turn of the century, two thousand ish, we obviously a lot of people in the UK thought the O2 was a, a massive white elephant and they actually turned that one around weirdly yeah, um, yeah but yeah there's lots of things obviously around the world that are considered to be white elephants but where does it come from well the origin of the term is quite fascinating it comes from the practice of monarchs in southeast asian countries of myanmar thailand laos and cambodia owning very rare and highly regarded albino elephants so obviously white elephants uh, yeah it's believed that if a monarch owned a white elephant they reigned with justice and power and the kingdom was blessed with peace and prosperity now if a monarch gifted you with a white elephant it will simultaneously be a blessing and a curse <laughs> The reason for this, the animal was obviously revered, and receiving such a beast was a sign of uh, the monarch's favour. You know, really, really quite lovely, really yeah. quite great. You know, you're doing well in the uh, in the kingdom, as it were. However, because white elephants were considered sacred, they weren't allowed to work under the laws of the time. So you'd be gifted with this expensive to maintain animal um, that you weren't allowed to give away, and, and it obviously ate a lot. So <laughs> you just got to keep feeding the bloody thing. <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't do anything. It just just sits there being revered. So that's pretty much my worst nightmare to be honest with you. I was going to say that's, that's <laughs> yeah. perfect for you. <laughs> going back to don't like stuff. <laughs> so something you can't get rid of and cost an absolute fortune. Yeah, I'd, I'd hate that. Perfect. There's an interesting story about a phrase uh, how the phrase white elephant became popularised actually. A chap called Phineas Taylor Barnum who was an American showman, politician and businessman who lived in the 1800s. Now he doesn't sound like an overly nice guy to be honest and he's credited with inventing the phrase there's a sucker born every minute. <laughs> Although to be honest with you there's no credible evidence that he actually said it. <laughs> but it's been, you know, late at his feet. Yeah. He um he was he seemed quite popular in some circles and uh, did very well as a businessman. But uh, yeah, he's uh, he owns circuses and things. If he's a politician, he probably can't be that nice. I'm guessing. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I'm not arguing. <laughs> no, indeed. I don't think many people would. <laughs> anyway, Parnum is convinced, uh, convinced the King of Siam to sell him what he called the Sacred White Elephant of Burma in roughly 1883. It took three years of Barnum persuading the king and a total of 250,000 US dollars, which um, at the time... Well, at the time it was two hundred fifty thousand dollars, obviously. Yeah. But right now would be a staggering six point five million dollars. Jesus, that's an expensive elephant. Yeah, three years, two hundred fifty thousand dollars at the time. So, but when he finally did, he um, he only discovered that uh, rather than buying a white elephant as he thought he was getting, it was actually a dirty grey elephant with a few pink spots. <laughs> <laughs> So he got it all the way. He was taking it to the States, apparently. He got it to London and uh, offloaded it. And I think they put it into a stables in Regent Zoo or something, whilst uh, they were obviously staying over and recuperating it and what have yeah. you. And yeah, it was found out that uh, the, the public thought it was dirty grey, a few pink spots. <laughs> That's awkward. Not when he was. Not when, yeah, it's very awkward. When, especially when he spent that much money on the damn thing. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> Apparently Barnum said at the time, well, it's worse than I expected to find it. Which I suppose if you spend that much money, you've got to move on, really. Yeah, you? it's not really much you can do. I don't no. know what the return policy is on an elephant. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine he would have been getting away with that. No. <laughs> I, I couldn't find out if Barnum decided to use the elephant in his American circus. But it seems likely after all the effort and expense that he went to. I mean, it is still an elephant in the late 1800s. So, you know. Yeah, you could probably do something with it. Yeah, absolutely. He died a very rich man, apparently. So at least, he, you know, he didn't, didn't yeah. cause him too much problems. Now we come on to the phrase, close but no cigar. Ah. It means that when someone um, is close to achieving a goal, but didn't quite make it. But why the cigar? After all, nowadays, less than less people than ever are smoking. In fact, the UK government says that 14.4% of the population of England were smokers in 2019, which was down from 49.9% in 2017. Wowzers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's quite a small amount nowadays, I guess yeah. with all the legislation around sort of plain packaging and uh, generally having to smoke outside of, well, when restaurants are open, yeah, um, things like that sort of pushed it down, which is great. Right, because obviously you know, smoking is not good for your, for your body. But I'm sure regular cigar smokers are even smaller percentage of that. So so why do we use the phrase? Well, it most likely originated in the 1920s. Stall holders at carnivals and country fairs would give out cigars as prizes if you won the game. Knock over a bottle or get a ball through a hoop or whatever, you know, whatever you were trying to play. So nowadays we get big cuddly animals. They used to get cigars back then. They got cigars. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> did they though? Because of course, well, yeah. as today, it's really hard to actually win one of those games, you know that the bottles are glued down or, you know, the, the hoop is slightly too small for the ball or whatever it is that the uh, carnival um, people will do. But, uh, yeah, so back in the day, the carnival barker would declare, close, but no cigar, when the player failed to win the game. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> Giving away cigars. <laughs> <That's amazing>. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah. It's quite mad, isn't it, today's thought? Today's mindset. Yeah, didn't get it at all. So not only punters were losing the money by failing to um, win most of the big games, but if they did get it, did win, they'd get a cancer stick. <laughs> so I'm not sure about you, but I'm gl- I'm really quite glad the world has moved on, even if it is cuddly, pointless toys that you win nowadays. <laughs> They're not Which pointless. I would hate. They bring you joy, Chris. No, 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 no. <laughs> not this cold, dead. Do you not? Heart. Do you not look at your avocado plushie and, and feel joy in your in your in your heart? <laughs> My avocado flush is currently, I should turn it over, she's currently looking at me from the corner of the room. <laughs> <laughs> On the sure, floor. And surely you're looking, like at it. It. you're looking at it and thinking warm, fuzzy feelings, no? Mm, no. <laughs> Where's the bonfire? <laughs> <laughs> Bloody avocado plushy. Anyway. <laughs> you're welcome. 
Now we move on to the next phrase. Obviously, I mentioned hangover, uh, having a hangover at the introduction of my uh, section of this podcast. Um, and people everywhere obviously say that um, if they've got one of them experiencing the aftereffects of drinking too heavily probably the night before. Generally, these include a headache, dehydration, and sometimes sickness. But why hangover, not something else, to describe the same feelings? Well, I'd love to be able to tell you that it's because drinkers who found themselves unable to get home after a night out on the tiles would sleep on ropes, obviously back in the sort of late 1800s. Um, Literally, bent over ropes sleeping. Uh, But as much as there are old photographs on the internet of men doing this, um, there's very little other supporting evidence, so it's not believed that this is the real reason, unfortunately. Uh. It seems that this thinking comes from George Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London, which was written in 1933. There's a paragraph in the book that follows. At the two-penny hangover, hangover, the lodgers sit in a row on a bench. There is a rope in front of them, and they lean on it as if leaning over a fence. A man, humorously called the valet, cuts the rope at five in the morning. I have never been there myself, but Bozo has been there often. I have asked him whether anyone could possibly sleep in such an altitude, and he said it was more comfortable than it sounded. At any rate, better than a bare floor. I I don't get it myself. Yes, yeah. I mean these were harder times in the late 1800s. I'm guessing. Yeah, but I think I think I think I'd take the floor to be honest. Well, that's what I was thinking to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I would take the floor too. It's got to be more. Um, yeah, it's got to be more comfortable, isn't it, than sitting on a bench leaning over a rope? Yeah, each to their own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the types of uh, lodgings that Orwell was talking about were for people who couldn't afford to stay anywhere else, and not necessarily the drinkers who had got you know who had too much to get before they get home. Yeah. There is much more historical evidence to say that the term actually comes from the idea of something that is left over after being drunk. Which is a shame, because as much as I can't ever imagine myself falling asleep on a rope, like we just mentioned, <laughs> it does somewhat sound strange, but viable. But yeah, like I say, there really is no evidence other than these few photos. It does paint quite a picture. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it seems like it was more homeless people. I mean, we'll talk about this in the future, but they, they had these things called coffin houses that the Salvation Army ran, which is nothing to do with um, Hangover, by the way. <laughs> but they were the first uh, sort of um, homeless shelters that were set up, um, because obviously people were moving to the cities. And, and so this, this obviously the first time people sort of encountered homelessness yeah. really um, so they would they would build they were literally coffins they were like open coffins and there were like hundreds of them in a room or I guess it was in a warehouse or something and obviously men could go and sleep there at night yeah. very strange obviously, yeah, yeah, obviously different time again you know yeah. wouldn't treat something like that nowadays but uh, yeah Des- desperate times very much so yeah. now we come on to you're pulling my leg which means <laughs> you think someone is teasing you or jokingly lying to you there are a couple of theories of how this phrase came out but neither unfortunately backed up with any historical evidence. The first theory is likely came from the 18th and 19th centuries, as back then muggers would often work in gangs of two to rob people. The first robber would trip up their victim, whilst the second criminal would rob them while they're on the ground. Lovely. <laughs> yeah, we, we, London, lovely times <laughs> to be alive. <laughs> Now, I saw references to pulling the victim down by tugging on their legs. But even in Victorian England, this seems like quite an unlikely thing to happen. Mm. I mean, if somebody got somebody, I mean, if they're a kid tugging on your legs, you'd sort of kick him away, wouldn't you? I, I, yeah, so I don't think, I mean, there's no real evidence, like I say, for this, but that's that's one of the theories anyway. The next reason uh, for this phrase existing is the executioners, execution sorry, that took place at Tyburn in England. Some people say that in order to get a quicker death, as strangulation is known to take a very long time if you don't get a long drop, the people who are being hung would pay others to hang off the legs to make the process go more quickly Ooh. yeah gruesome eh? what a grim thought yeah totally um but again there's no real reason for this to mean you know to um, yeah there's no real reason for this to, to actually mean what what you know what the theory says it does it yeah. you know it's it's very dark and it's got nothing to be you know how does the switch to kidding you're kidding me it's, uh, it's not really very viable is it <laughs> 
it's a bit a bit of a difference between uh, teasing someone and helping them die quicker when they're being hung. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Um, so yeah, it's very unlikely, I think. And obviously, and also on top of that, there's no actual document. Obviously, there was lots of um, hangings at Tyburn um, over the years, and there's been no there was no documented time that it ever happened um, with somebody hanging off somebody else's legs to to make the, the process go quicker. So yeah, all in all, as much as you know, they're quite interesting stories. <laughs> um, and they're the things that the internet says. I don't think it actually is, unfortunately. Next up, we've got don't look a gift horse in the mouth. The phrase essentially means um, if you receive a gift, do it so graciously without voicing any criticism. But where does it come from? It's likely that it came from a proverb, which um, are short, expressive sayings in common use, which are recognised as conveying some accepted truth or useful advice. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth is attributed to John Haywood, who was a singer, musician and playwright in Henry VIII and Mary I's courts. Haywood published a dialogue um, containing the number in effect of all proverbs in the English tongue in 1546. Now, I've just read that. But honestly, I copied it with the actual English that he used. And my God, it's uh, it's not what you'd imagine would be current English, obviously, being that it's from 1546. Yeah. The, his, his book, I guess, um, tells us uh, where the phrase comes from, but not why. Well, a common way that uh, a horse is valued is to inspect its teeth. This is because, because when a horse ages, they grow more teeth, which means the existing teeth change shape and, the, and they project further downwards. So if you receive uh, a horse as a gift and then immediately inspect its teeth, that would be considered to be really offensive. Much like I'm doing, you know, much like doing the same with the present today. Like an avocado plushie. Like an avocado, I was just thinking that, I was not saying it. Like an avocado plushie. Who look an avocado plushie in the face, like a horse in the face, you know, a gift horse a in the face. A real monster, that's who. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, so if I ever get you a present, Harrison, that's not an avocado plushie. Uh, don't, don't, you know, don't go checking its teeth out, yeah. I promise. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's end with an idiom: "Let the cat out of the bag," which means you revealed a secret or perhaps a surprise party too early. The phrase was first used in 1760 in a book review for the London Magazine. The reviewer complained, "We could have wished that the author had not let the cat out of the bag." meaning the author probably spoiled the surprise for it even been revealed properly. Yeah. That might um, have been the first use recorded in print, but obviously, as with any of these sayings, it most likely used well before then. For this phrase, there are a com- couple of potential explanations. First up, we've got scam artists in the Middle Ages to thank. In this account, crooked livestock vendors would cheat their customers out of a pig, instead of switching the hog for a cat at the time of purchase. <laughs> So, in this story, the farmer would, who bought the pig would, would obviously get it all the way home, and then when he opened the bag, the cat jumps out and probably hissed at him for being in the truck the bag for so damn long. But the thing is, right, I know it's the Middle Ages, and I know they were subsistence farmers, but I'm sure, I mean, even I, as a 21st century office worker, would be able to understand, you know, the difference in weight between a pig and a cat. I was, I was going to say, yeah, like, the idea makes sense you know it kind of works when you explain it but yeah if you're if you're presented with a pig in a bag and it's actually a cat it's going to be pretty obvious pretty bloody quickly that that's a cat not a pig yeah yeah i would have said so partly because of the way yeah also i mean pigs make different noises to cats yeah and i don't think a cat's going to be quite happy to be put in a bag either so it's probably going to be clawing and meowing and scratching and hissing so it's going to be pretty obvious that you don't have a pig in there yeah absolutely i would say so so yeah it, it seems pretty unlikely i think i think we both agree and i think even even mid-latency 
middle ages subsistence farmers wouldn't have fallen for that one. <laughs> um, the other uh, way of, of of this is explained is probably um, the unlikely source of the phrase um, is, is due to the Royal British Navy. The cat in this explanation refers to the cat o' nine tail. Uh-huh. That's the whip made of nine intertwined cords and that left marks like cat scratches on the backs of sailors who were being punished for crimes they committed. There's never been any historical evidence on earth to support this explanation, not to mention that floggings weren't actually secret. <laughs> so <laughs> that part of it doesn't stand up to scrutiny either. So I think much like with the other thing we just talked about, it, it really, yeah, doesn't really stand up to, to, to um, scrutiny too yeah. much. But, you know, it's a good story. People like a story. I think I think the um, cat and nine tails on a boat is also one of the possible uh, sources of there's not enough room to swing a cat in here. Ah, uh, yeah. Because not having enough room to swing the cat and nine tails if you were flogging someone inside. So you'd have to go and flog them outside because the ceiling was too low. I'm, I'm sure I read that somewhere. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Actually, to be honest, there was uh, the, the few articles I read that said there were a n- number of cat-related idioms yeah. <laughs> related to the British Navy. So yeah, <laughs> probably the cat and nine tails a lot. <laughs> Rather than real cats. <laughs> yeah. But yes. Regardless of where the saying came from, obviously we still use English language today. And it's quite something when you think it entered print 260 years ago and obviously was in use well before that as well. Yeah, it's crazy. A few idioms for you there. Amazing. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I love I love language stuff, like learning where, where words come from and how language changes over time. Yeah. I think it, it's such a fascinating thing. It's very cool, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I, I particularly, I find it fascinating that we can we can have a, a saying or a phrase that everyone knows, everyone uses, but no one knows where it comes from. Everyone just just, yeah. just says it because, you know, you, you heard it growing up, so you say it, and other people hear you say it, so you say they say it, and no one actually really knows where it comes from. Yeah. I, I think that's a, a fascinating thing. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Idioms. Thank you very much. No worries. Right. <laughs> I have a slightly different one for you. Fair enough. <laughs> slightly less intellectual, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> does, it call, does it involve an avocado flashy? Please say it, no. It, it doesn't. No. No. God. But, um, well... We'll start off by talking about your love of animals, which is which is well documented. <laughs> sure. Listeners familiar with the show will no doubt be able to reference many times over the history of this podcast where you have mentioned multiple times how you dislike pets of all shapes and sizes. Yep. If you go all the way back to episode two and experience the wonder of the sound of vintage We Love the Internet, where Chris is still talking <laughs> into the back of his bloody microphone. <laughs> Even after being shown how to use it previously. Even after being shown how to... Yes. <laughs> You will hear us talk about some unusual pets as I try to find one that Chris might actually tolerate. Mm -mm, Very unlikely. During this episode, Chris then talked about the history of camels in Australia (laughs) and how much of a nuisance they can be to the local farmers and various measures taken to try and stop them. (laughs) If you haven't listened to that episode, please do go and listen back. Even if just to laugh at Chris not being able to work his bloody microphone. So you can't can't account for professionalism, Harrison. Sorry about that. Yeah. um, No comment. Well, moving swiftly on. <laughs> this week on the internet, I've been learning about Australia's emu war. <laughs> sure, okay. <laughs> so, emus, in case you aren't familiar, are flightless birds indigenous to Australia. Mm-hmm. They can run up to 40 miles an hour and grow to be around six foot tall in height. They are also, if you're a farmer, an absolute bloody menace. <laughs> Much like those camels. Much like those camels. So, did you did you encounter emus at all in your time spent in Australia, Chris? Um, really, only in um, a zoo because, much like any animals that are, there's like nine, nine out of ten most dangerous animals in the world live in Australia. <laughs> and you don't see any of them. <laughs> At least I didn't in Melbourne. Well, it's probably for the best that you don't. 
pretty, pretty much. Yeah, probably for me, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw um, like uh, kangaroos in the, in the in the zoo, emus. Yeah, anything famous, koala in the zoo. Um, yeah, basically anything famous in the zoos, and uh, nothing really uh, out in the outback. No, you didn't. You didn't encounter one in a, in a on your own in the middle of the night, walking down the street somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, mugged by an emu or anything like that. Thankfully, no. no. But I do remember a story. I don't know what happened. Like in the, I must have been mid two thousands, like twenty fifteen or something, twenty fourteen. I do remember a story of a, uh, of a guy walking into his kitchen in in Canberra and being confronted with a um, a kangaroo that punched him in the face. <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> Insulted by a kangaroo in your own house. <laughs> Only in Australia. Only in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody dangerous, actually, kangaroos. Anyway, oh, yeah, they're, they're, I, we went to a, a kangaroo and koala sanctuary when we were in Brisbane a, a couple of years ago, and yeah, mm. they're, they're freaking ripped. Like you see mm-hmm. that they, they were muscular motherfuckers, and like you oh, see yeah, you absolutely. see videos of them like fighting with each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's vicious. Very very dangerous. <laughs> you wouldn't mess with one, would you? Actually, I, I don't know if it's still true now. But when I lived there, kangaroo meat was really a de- not a delicacy, but it was really popular in Russia. Really? So I used to export the kangaroo meat over there. So yeah, I don't oh. know if they still do that. They probably do. But but, uh, yeah. Well, there we go. <laughs> Nothing like chopping up your national animal and send it off for... <laughs> when in doubt. To be consumed in another part of the world. <laughs> right. So back to the... Sorry, em- I completely derailed No, 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 there. no. It's good, it's good, it's good. Back to the emu war. Mm. So the emu war was an attempt to deal with yet another annoying animal terrorising Australian farmers, much like the mm. aforementioned camels that we discussed in yeah. episode two. After the First World War, many returning veterans were given farmland in the western part of the country in an attempt to increase farming in those areas. Not long after this, of course, came the Great Depression, with Australia and Australian farmers specifically being hit pretty hard, because as soon as America started shutting down, they stopped importing things, other countries stopped importing things, and obviously Australian farmers make their money by exporting stuff, so they, they, they took a particularly heavy hit. Yeah. The government had also promised to help out the farmers with subsidies when they first took over the farms, but facing a lot more problems all of a sudden, that money never appeared. Government promising to do something and it not happening. It's... I know unheard of take some imagining to to the picture even absolutely after the government failed to provide the help it promised the new farmers soon discovered that they had a new problem with some 20,000 migrating emus 20,000 suddenly turned up on their land oh my god they were taking part <laughs> in their regular migration when they discovered all this lovely new land which had been so <laughs> considerately cleared for them and filled with delicious delicious crops <laughs> feast time exactly Yes, the emus quickly consumed said crops and generally fucked up all the land the farmers had been working so hard on. <laughs> oh my god. They also left massive holes in the rabbit fences which had been recently built to try and keep rabbits out. Mm. So whatever the emus didn't eat, the rabbits finished off and took care of. Sure. So as a brief aside, the history of rabbits in Australia is also very similar to that of the history of camels, funnily enough, yeah. that Chris told us all about in episode two. In, in 1859, 24 rabbits were released into the wilds of Australia. How many do you think there are in Australia today? Oh, God. Probably millions, I would say. Well, you start over 24, 1859, so 150 years. That's turned into 600 million of the little buggies. <laughs> 600 million? Yeah, they breed, oh. uh, well, they breed like rabbits. 
<laughs> yes, indeed. That idiot Englishman who brought them over because he wanted to shoot them or something, didn't he? Yeah, well, there's there's a Wikipedia page for the guy who, <sighs> who released the rabbits, and that's basically all he's known for. Moron, yeah. <laughs> the very bad idea of releasing 24 rabbits into the wild. <laughs> Absolute moron. The government, after hearing about how devastating the rabbits had been to local farmers, originally attempted to simply put up some fences, which would have worked brilliantly if rabbits weren't very adept at leaping over fences. <laughs> It's like it's like fences and walls don't work, Harrison. I know it's amazing, know. isn't it? Particularly it's when weird, you're talking about a little thing that can jump really freaking high. <laughs> <laughs> so as a result, their rabbit-proof fence proved to be not great at stopping rabbits. Mm. So when these farmers started complaining about the emus, a different approach was taken. Oh. The army veterans had seen firsthand the effectiveness of this new thing called a machine gun. <laughs> And so requested the government send men with machine guns to deal with their problems. <laughs> the, the government and the military, it said, saw the operation as a way of giving some good target practice to their troops. So readily agreed because machine guns were pretty new at the time. So they hadn't had much experience of shooting at moving targets. So they thought a bunch of oh. emus would make for an easy, easy practice. But yeah. they were very, very wrong. It, <laughs> it's also said that they were hoping to gather some emu feathers for new hats for their light cavalry units. <laughs> <laughs> in true government style, they made the agreement only on the condition that the farmers would pay not only for the ammunition used, but also for the food and lodgings of the soldiers while they were there. Blimey, I thought the farmers were broke at this point. Well, okay. yeah, no, but apparently they had to put them up and feed them. Right. While they were there and pay for the ammunition. Yeah. So, Major GPW Meredith. Uh, was chosen for the job and was dispatched with two soldiers, each armed with a Bren gun and a total of 10,000 rounds of ammunition. 10,000? So, so convinced were the military that this could only go well that they also sent with the soldiers a camera crew and reporter. Oh no. <laughs> hoping for them to capture the glorious victory as some sort of propaganda for the government. <laughs> this is never going to go well, is it? Well, no. That certainly won't come back and bite them in the ass, don't worry. No, no, no absolutely not. No, no, no. It was expected that the emus would be no match for the most advanced tools of war but that's not exactly how it went down <laughs> their first issue was the weather arriving in october 1932 they were greeted with torrential rain which caused the emus to scatter and go into hiding so it wasn't until november that the soldiers were able to go out hunting so i can just imagine them just sitting there for like a month in the, in the farmsteads just eating all the food <laughs> yeah, just exactly. generally lounging around <laughs> doing nothing while the farms are working hard and yeah. putting them out thanks for inviting us guys yeah we'll get out and deal with that in a bit it's raining yeah we can't we can't do it in the rain <laughs> can't see any emus can't go out there yet <laughs> on november the 2nd responding to reports of a sighting of more than 50 emus meredith and his men traveled to campion and it was quickly realized that the birds were out of range so locals attempted to chase them towards the machine guns <laughs> the birds employed a genius tactical maneuver called running away <laughs> And so they scattered into smaller groups and fled. Oh, I'd imagine that heaving this Bren gun and these 10,000 rounds out to the outback was probably on a horse and cart. It must have been an absolute nightmare. Yeah, I mean, you get all set up and this, tiny, this little yeah. bird just goes running off 40 miles an hour in the other direction. <laughs> That would happen. After a while, and getting desperate, the gunners just opened fire while the birds were oh, still out of range. God, they're out of range! And this entirely failed. Luckily, there wasn't a camera crew on hand to document this embarrassing moment. <laughs> oh no, no, wait a minute. Yeah, no, there was. <laughs> a second attempt, again with the help of the farmers, was able to kill, quote, a number of birds. <laughs> a number. A number. 
<laughs> Two days later, a large group of more than a thousand emus were spotted. Oh. Meredith set up an ambush for them, and with the soldiers this time waiting for the birds to actually be in range before opening fire. <laughs> Now, you'd think that two machine guns at close range would make short work of a large flock of more than a thousand emus. Well, I thought so. I mean, the British Army made a short work of those elephant seals we talked about previously. Ex- so, exactly, yeah. yes, but uh, you'd be wrong. <laughs> Unfortunately for the soldiers, but luckily for the emus, both of their guns jammed after only a dozen had been oh, killed. <laughs> very lucky emus. <laughs> and again, of course, the camera crew was on hand to capture this oh, glorious abs- victory. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Going well, boys. That's now basically 2 0 to the emus. It's <laughs> <laughs> all running off in different directions. The major had been told that in the south, the birds were generally tamer, and so decided to try his luck with them. The, the emus, however, had other plans. According to the observations of an army observer, each pack seems to have its own leader now a big black plumed bird which stands fully six feet high and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction and warns them of our approach. <laughs> Here they come, lads. Get yeah. out. Go. So basically, the emus had their number. <laughs> it's almost like the emus were learning. <laughs> Getting frustrated, Meredith attempted at one point to mount his gun to a truck oh and chase God. the birds, which failed on two grounds. First, the emus could run faster than the truck. <laughs> And second, the ride was so rough, the gunner couldn't get a shot off. I can imagine in 1932, bloody truck rumbling across the outback. There's no paved roads out there. Some poor guy clinging on for dear life in the back. (laughs) Just bouncing up and down, doing, what, 20 miles an hour or something? While he's trying to aim at a little bird that's doing 40 miles an hour all around him. On November the 8th, six days after the first, quote, engagement, (laughs) they had killed about 50 emus at the cost of 2,500 rounds of ammunition. Wow. (laughs) 2,500 rounds of ammo. Major Meredith did note, however, that his men had not sustained any casualties during this time. (laughs) So that was good. Yeah, well, can you imagine how much more embarrassing it would have been if they had? This attempted war against the emus was, as you can imagine, the butt of many jokes in the press and in political <laughs> circles. Ornithologist Dominic Saventi commented, The machine gunner's dreams of point-blank fire into serried masses of emus were soon dissipated. The emu command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics. <laughs> Its unwieldy army soon split up into innumerable small units that made use of the military equipment uneconomic. <laughs> a crestfallen field force therefore withdrew from the combat area after about a month. <laughs> it's almost like emus are smarter than humans. <laughs> it's looking that way, isn't it? <laughs> a, member, a member of the opposition party in Parliament suggested that a round of medals should be awarded to the emus who had won every engagement in the war so far. <laughs> Oh, Aussie politicians take no prisoners. <laughs> Given their poor performance and the bashing they were taking in the press, the Australian government withdrew their troops on November the 8th. Speaking after the withdrawal, Major Meredith said, If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any <laughs> army in the world. <laughs> they can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. <laughs> 
<laughs> as soon as the military withdrew, the local farmers continued to complain. During this time, there was a drought in the area, which meant that the emus had returned in their thousands to consume whatever water and crops they could find, <laughs> devastating the local farms even worse than before. Sounds like those bloody camels. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> After a week or so of such complaints, the Australian Premier decided to, once again, send troops into the field. <laughs> really? Yep. You didn't learn from last time? No, no, no. After all that, he decided, yep, let's try that again. <laughs> it's bound to go better next time. Incredibly, they decided to once again send poor Major Meredith. <laughs> oh, no, sharp, they did. <laughs> they did, citing a lack of experienced officers with machine gunning experience. <laughs> the poor sod. <laughs> I'm not sure Meredith had much experience at this point. Well, he'd had plenty of experience of firing it, but just not hitting it. (laughs) (laughs) Just not hitting those damn emus. Initially, they faced similar problems, but after several weeks of combat, (laughs) they they had clearly got their eye in and were managing to kill around 100 emus a day by December. For how many many ammo rounds, though? (laughs) Well, yeah, quite. When the troops were withdrawn again on December the 10th, Meredith reported 986 emus had been killed and 9,860 rounds of ammunition spent. <laughs> exactly one emu per 10 shots. Wow. <laughs> he, he also claimed that another 2,500 emus died from their wounds, but I'm not, I'd love to know how he came to that figure and that information. Died from their wounds. <laughs> Could you imagine spraying liberally into the emus? <laughs> Well, basically, they were they were so nimble that you, they would like take like glancing blows, but they they were so hardy that they could just they could just shrug it off. Yeah, absolutely. Carry on. I think they saw them being shot so much they decided, oh, yeah, it must have been at least another two and a half thousand died. Yeah, yeah for definitely, sure. definitely. <laughs> Returning to Parliament, the government declared the operation a complete success, <laughs> despite <laughs> having killed only one thousand of the twenty or so thousand emus that were harassing the farmers. <laughs> Right, lads, there's only 19,000 emus out there. It's okay. We got them. Job done. Hopefully they did get those new feather hats they were so excited about. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, the emus on their crest, on the the Australian government crest. Yep, that's what they do to their national Mm. bird. (laughs) (laughs) Despite this so-called victory, the problem didn't go away. Surprise, surprise. No, I'm shocked. And the local farmers would once again petition the government for help, <laughs> requesting the military be sent back in in 1934, 1943, and 1948. 1943, when the war was on? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, God, that must have been a serious problem. <laughs> they wanted the army to leave the front and come and shoot some emus. <laughs> You're not getting any foolish to come and shoot them. <laughs> However, by this time, word had spread around the world of the Australian government's actions, and they were starting to get a lot of grief for their decisions, so all of those requests were denied. (laughs) Prominent conservationists and ornithologists protested against the, quote, war, calling it an attempted extermination of the rare emu. I think think they were a long way away from extermination. (laughs) (laughs) I think they might have been, yeah. (laughs) It would have taken them a bit more. (laughs) Slightly more. During this time and onwards, the government switched back to its policy of building exclusion fences as deployed against <laughs> rabbits and dingoes. Uh, an enormous fence had been built on the other side of Australia, stretching 5,600 kilometres from the south up to Brisbane to keep the dingoes out of that part of Australia, which is a crazy thing. Yeah. And this seemed to be working for them, and so this became the more publicly accepted approach to pest control. <laughs> this isn't to say that the farmers were happy to just rely on the fences, however. When military 
free aid was declined, a bounty system which had been trialled earlier was brought back, and supposedly 57,000 bounties were claimed in the first six months of 1934 alone. 57,000? 57,000, yeah. That gives you an idea of just how many of the emus there were around. And how few of the army managed to kill! <laughs> my favourite. In 1950, a request was once again issued to the Australian Parliament. Farmers complaining that they were running out of bullets shooting all these emus. <laughs> so they asked Parliament to release ammunition to Australian farmers to help them to continue to deal with their emu problem. Right. And it was approved and half a million rounds of 303 ammunition were released to them. Oh my god, that's insane. Ultimately, as fun as it may be to ride in the back of a truck with a machine gun strapped to it. <laughs> I'm not sure, I'm not sure that soldier was quick count is fun to be honest with you for sure. Maybe it's more fun to watch someone else do that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. In the end, it has to be said that the building of fences was probably the much better, if much duller, way to fix the problem. Mm. Yes. <laughs> 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 so the the Australians Emu War of 1932 which um, I think it's probably fair to say they lost <laughs> yeah they lost quite badly <laughs> yeah so many feral species have been introduced into Australia yeah. by idiots in the past oh. <laughs> yeah I believe I believe the emu is now a protected species um, so the, the days of hunting emu are probably long gone um, <laughs> in theory anyway <laughs> Well, yeah. What happens in the outback stays in the outback. I, was, I took a bit of a tangent looking at the um, dingoes and the the, ding, the the dingo fence that uh, is on the s- southeast side of Australia. That thing is ridiculous. 5,000 kilometres. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the longest fence in the world. Wow. And it costs it cost the Australians like $10 million a year to maintain it. Oh. But the, the damage to livestock would far outweigh that if they didn't have it up. So yeah, because it, obviously livestock completely defensive or something. Yeah. Like dingo coming after you. Dingoes are, are vicious. <laughs> Talking of kangaroos, dingo Dingoes will hunt kangaroos. Wow. <laughs> even even the red kangaroos, which are the real big bastards. Yeah. And they did like a 20-year survey of um, the, the eating habits of dingoes. And yeah, the, it was primarily made up of things like water buffalo, calf, cattle, and... <laughs> red kangaroo <laughs> holy crap they're quite small animals yeah 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 well they they, they hunt in packs and um right putting their prey down they've got crazy good stamina so they just chase and chase and chase until whoever they're chasing gets tired and they just like tag in basically wow a couple of lead dogs will chase um their prey into a, a pack ambush or apparently there have been cases where they've been observed chasing kangaroos into fences and then the kangaroos get stuck in the fences, and so then the dingoes just uh, oh, take them down that take way. Take them down that way, yeah. Oh, Although I, d- I did read one report of a single dingo trying to take on a fully grown adult um, kangaroo, and apparently the, the fight lasted for over an hour. Oh my god! <laughs> the kangaroo just punching this dingo. Over <laughs> Tell me the kangaroo won eventually. It did, it did eventually manage oh, to uh, defend itself, yeah. Far out. What a country. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Totally. I was in Brisbane. This was many years ago now. But we went to on like um some. I think it was on a like on a day trip or something. And we we'd gone to. I can't remember what it was now. But it was like there was this lake and stuff. It was very nice and pretty. And we were told, like if <laughs> if you see a dingo, then walk away immediately. I think we had to walk away. We had to stand the ground. I can't remember which. Now we had to walk away. But not. Uh, but keep you keep your face to it. You know, back up or something, and, and don't get, show it any food. Yeah. Because it will go. You know, just go for you basically. Yeah. Now we, obviously they're very dangerous creatures. Yeah. They they said that they they hunt. Uh, yeah, anything up to a red kangaroo size, and um, they there are 
cases of them attacking humans mm. but in almost in almost every situation it's been a human trying to feed the dingo oh my god presumably in an attempt to domesticate it or yeah just yeah. just try and be friendly to it yeah and then of course there's <laughs> there's that horrible one of the um two-month-old oh, baby yes. being dragged out of the tent dingo stole my baby <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, the one, Darwin. yeah 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 oh horrible yeah totally awful yeah what a country <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful place, full of that things that try to kill you. Yeah, I watched I watched a YouTube video uh, whilst researching this. And it starts off by basically saying <laughs> that the first English settlers landed in Australia, looked around and saw a kangaroo being eaten by a snake, being eaten by a crocodile, being eaten by a koala, and thought, yeah, this is the place. <laughs> we need to live here. Yeah, this is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the Aussies are so tough, I think. I feel like the South Africans. You have to be, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> full, it's a full on lifestyle. Well, if you live in the outback, not as much in the cities anymore, but yeah. It's <laughs> probably why they enjoy uh, Vegemite so much. <laughs> oh, God. <what? laughs> so there we go. The Emu War. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. That the Aussies lost. Yeah, they did. They did indeed. <laughs> That's why we don't hear about it. They lost yeah. it. Yeah, it's not one of their more glorious historical moments. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> oh, right. I suppose that does it for an episode, huh? Pretty much. Okay. Thank you very much for downloading this week's We Love the Internet. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please do feel free to send them to a friend. Uh, if you've lived in Australia and you've experienced emus firsthand... <laughs> or anything or camels. else or camels or anything else we discussed in any of our episodes we'd love to hear from you uh, you can get in touch with us at welovetheinternet.co.uk uh, we are on Instagram Twitter and Facebook and we are WLTI underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter uh, yes if you have anything to discuss with us please do get in touch we'd love to hear your feedback and comments if you have a moment to leave us a review on iTunes we would greatly appreciate it just a five star rating or a, a written review if you're feeling particularly adventurous it would be a hugely appreciated by myself and maybe chris as well but he's a bit of a, <laughs> bit of a misery ass so you never know <laughs> just don't give me don't get me, me, me a avocado plush you just like the pet podcast as well, <laughs> or do both you know that's fine as well what? Um, no <laughs> <laughs> so until next week thank you very much and goodbye thank you bye-bye